Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Write this to the angel of the church at Philadelphia. This is the important message to you from the one who is completely good. He is the true God. He has King David's key in his hand. With that authority, when he opens a door, nobody can shut it. And when he shuts a door, nobody can open it. I see what you've done. Now, see what I've done. I've opened a door before you that no one can slam shut. You don't have much strength. I know that. You used what you had to keep my word. You didn't deny me when times were rough. You have continued to believe in me. And watch as I take those who call themselves true believers, but are nothing of the kind, pretenders whose true membership is in the club of Satan. Watch as I strip off their pretensions and they're forced to acknowledge it's you that I've loved. Because you kept my word in patience, passionate patience, I'll keep you safe in the time of testing that will be here soon. And all over the earth, every man, woman, and child put to the test. It will show me what each person is really like. I'm on my way. I'll be there soon. Keep a tight grip on what you have so no one can distract you and steal your crown, which is God's gift to you. Everyone who wins against Satan will be safe in God's house. I will make them like a strong pillar in God's great house, a permanent position of honor. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. I will also write my new name on those people. God's Spirit is speaking to you in the churches. You should understand what the Spirit is saying to you. Are your ears awake? Give it up for Heather, everyone. Well, I'm glad that Jonathan threw out that uh, West Philly joke and it flopped on him and not on me instead. (laughs) Actually, it's kind of nice up here. There's no more plexiglass. I feel like I can see you. You know, you guys had a good perspective because of the angle, but for us, it was like a cloudy, lit haze and couldn't see anybody. But now, I see you. I know if you're sleeping or not. Maybe, maybe I'll preach from here this morning. Yeah. Huh? No. No more joking. Time to preach. So, I have a daughter. You've probably seen her running around if you've been here. Two, little two-year-old with these little pigtails. She, you know, she owns the place, she thinks. She's at the place um, in her life where she's just tall enough now to reach doorknobs. 
which obviously that becomes the new fascination for her. So there was this day where Brittany was working in the office and she was trying to get some stuff done and I'm trying to entertain her and keep her away from mommy. She's in a mommy phase. Um, after numerous failed attempts on my end to keep her away from the office, uh, she's trying to get at the door and it's a, it's a bad thing. So I tell her just a little fib, you know, I know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, I can't, can't do that, but I'm also human, okay? I tell her this little fib, I say, um, sorry, Bubba, the, the door's locked, we, we can't get in there. And she's like, oh, okay. So she marches off. She comes back with my keys. She's like, here, daddy, keys. I'm like, oh, shoot, okay, uh, well played. So. And go to the doorknob, and the, the door doesn't even have like a keyhole, okay? It's just a doorknob. So I'm sitting there like, no, that one doesn't work. That one doesn't work either. Go through all my keys. I'm like, sorry, I, I don't have the keys. She's like, come, Daddy, more keys. So we march around the whole house, getting literally every key that we have, trying to find a key that will unlock this door. You know, there was a moment where I'm like, ah, should I be perpetuating this little lie of mine, but obviously I chose to continue. And uh, it, was, it was fun. At the end of it, we tried, I think, 20 different keys, and I was like, I'm sorry, I just don't have the key, it's locked, we can't get in. And somehow that worked. This morning, as you've already heard, we're continuing in our Dear Knack series, a look through the seven letters uh, in the church, the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. Thank you again, Heather, for your great reading. Uh, I, I could just sense, I hope you could sense in that reading, there's just great delight in Jesus as he writes this church of Philadelphia. In five of the other churches, uh, there are a mixed review. There's this praise and there's this rebuke, this correction. There's one of them that we're going to get to in the last part of the series where he actually has zero good things to say, all rebuke. But the church of Philadelphia is the exact opposite. He has no rebuke, no complaint no word of correction, there's no, but I have this against you. Instead, Jesus just praises and encourages them. He says, I know your deeds. You have kept my word and not denied my name. I know all the things you do, and I've opened a door for you that no one can close. We're going to spend the bulk of our time talking through this idea of the open door. But before we get there, I just want to take a few moments to highlight the brilliance of Jesus and the way that he is in the details. Okay? In each of the churches that Jesus finds himself, he describes himself using different imagery and words. To us at face value, they may be maybe a little odd or confusing or at best a cool or encouraging image. But to these seven churches, they were incredibly personal. He chose specific, very specific words and images that would be very personal to them in their day, to their hearts. So, they would go beyond these cute little illustrations that we read in our day, and instead they would take a deep place in their heart. Let's look at verse 12 to see what Jesus is saying to this church. He says, All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Okay, so that's, that's a cool promise 2,000 years later, right? That's still cool to read today. You know, we're going to get to be a part of God's temple forever. We're going to be like 
branded by Jesus or something. I'm picturing like Jesus or property of JC, you know, the, the brand. But to the church of Philadelphia, it was so much more personal. There's three specific phrases that I want to focus in on. The first is, if you're victorious, you'll become pillars in the temple of my God and you will never have to leave it. See, the city of Philadelphia was located at the edge of an active volcanic area. Now, if you know anything about geology, eh, I get to throw it in whenever I can. I studied geology, if you're out of the loop. <laughs> Nobody ever, but I did. Um, so, if you know anything about geology, you know that volcanic areas have rich, fertile soil that is all around the base of the, uh, the volcano. Because the ash and whatnot that comes out of the volcano is super rich in nutrients and minerals, and it makes this rich soil on the other side. So areas around volcanoes often are very heavily populated, right? And we look at it and we go, uh, hello, <laughs> burning pot of mess with a temper. Why are you, why are you camping out against it? But this was an, agra agra an agra <laughs> agrarian, is that the word? It was a culture that was based on agriculture, and they needed to grow things. And so they were heavily populated on areas where they had rich, fertile soil. But as, as our instincts say, it also brings problems. Their most common problem wasn't actually eruptions, but it was earthquakes that were associated with uh, the volcanic activity. They frequently experienced strong tremors and jolting and aftershocks due to this activity. So whenever an earthquake would happen, the people of Philadelphia would literally leave the city. And then after a while, once the aftershocks died down, they would return home. This rhythm of fleeing and returning, fleeing and returning had become an ingrained part of their lives. There's even reports of people leaving every night. You know how some people have like summer homes and winter homes? They had like day homes and night homes? Seems like a lot of work, packing for the cottage every week or something, but, or every night. But that's what it sounded like. Anyways, the point is that they were constantly coming and going because of where they found themselves. But Jesus enters into their personal situation and he says to them, if you remain faithful to me, you will enter the city of God and you will never have to leave it, period. To quote Daryl Johnson, Jesus is saying, I am your security. I am your unshakable foundation. In all your coming and going, your fleeing and returning, I remain the same. My presence with you is not disturbed by geological, economic, or political disorder. Maybe for us in our day, it would have said something like, in all of your lockdowns and your reopenings, I am present. I am your security. I'm not surprised by this virus. Trust in me. All right, the second one that I want to focus in says, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. In AD 17, an earthquake leveled Philadelphia and Sardis. Now you see why they were worried about earthquakes. The Roman emperor Tiberius extended kindness and generosity to the city by stopping requiring them from paying taxes for a season and providing significant financial aid to rebuild the city. So as, uh, as a thank you for his generosity, Philadelphia actually changed the name of their city to Neo-Caesarea. Caesarea, I don't know how to pronounce it. Didn't look it up. Neo-Caesarea, we'll say. It means the new city of Caesar. So Jesus, being Jesus, he knows this history. 
And he offers a promise through personal experience. He's saying, I know that you've renamed yourself once, but now I, the God of the universe, am going to rename you again, but it's going to be after me. I'm naming you after myself. After my new city, this new city of Jerusalem, which is pointing back to a promise of eternity that's set out later in Revelation. Basically, he's saying, your true identity isn't in Philadelphia. Your true identity isn't in Caesar and his generosity. Your true identity is in me. King above all kings. Then the final phrase I want to focus in on in verse 12 says, all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of God. Philadelphia was a religious city. They had temples all over the place. So many, in fact, that the surrounding cities gave Philadelphia the nickname of Little Athens. There was a common custom associated with temples in their day. When someone had served the state well and left behind a legacy as someone of influence, like a magistrate or a priest, the city would inscribe their name on a pillar in one of these temples as a way to honor and remember their impact. See, I picture in our day it would be the equivalent of something like having your name etched on the side of the Stanley Cup. This is our year. I'm believing. 54 years? Almost twice my lifetime? But the boys in blue are getting their names on that cup, right? Come on. Or maybe it's more accurate to uh, having your number retired in a, in a hockey or baseball. Or, you know, the Jays have their level of excellence where they honor people who have had huge contributions. They're etched into history as one of the greatest. Well, in essence, Jesus is saying to the disciples living in Philadelphia, hey, you see how those people out there, they, they get their names etched on pillars when they do great things? I'm going to do you one better. I'm not just going to write your name on some random pillar in some random temple that is ultimately going to be torn down at some point. I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of God, in my temple. See, he's so brilliant. He's not, it's, he's not just saying like that, that he's going to write and then this thing's going to get torn down. Like even the real temple, the temple in Jerusalem got torn down, right? He's saying, no, no, no. I am writing you on my temple, on my city, in my kingdom, and you're going to be there forever in the temple that lasts forever. In all three of these examples, he's meeting them right where they're at in their reality, in their everyday lives. He's saying, I see you. I am in the details. I'm working through it all. I believe some of us need to hear that today. Jesus is in the details. He is replacing broken things. He shows up in the story of our lives, of our culture, our experiences, and he rewrites it for his glory. But aside from even those personal parallels that Philadelphia was met with, I think the last promise is just super amazing. He is offering for those people to become pillars in the temple of God. See, I kind of already talked on it, but pillars were structural. They were, they were a big deal. Like when you're building a house, you've got structural load-bearing walls and you've got non-load-bearing walls. You can do whatever you want with non-load-bearing walls. You can take them, you can move them, you can whatever. But you don't touch load-bearing walls. You don't touch posts and beams. Those are there because they're meant to be there. And if you get rid of them, something wrong is going to happen. It's the same thing with pillars. If you take out a pillar, the roof is going to collapse on you. 
So Jesus is saying, I'm making you a pillar in my temple forever. That's going to last forever. If we boil it down, he's saying, you are going to be a permanent part of my family, which is a permanent part of eternity. That's a beautiful promise. You're always going to be a part of the family of God. All right. Now let's jump back into the passage and see the main point that Jesus is trying to get across. He introduces himself by saying, this is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. Holy and true are both words that the Old Testament uses for God and only for God. In Hebrew, the word for true would have meant trustworthy, and in Greek it meant real. So basically, Jesus is saying, I am the only holy God. I am the only real God. All other gods are phony, poor imitations at best. But see, the problem is that the Jews of the day held that holy and true position for God only, which they should have. But if you know anything about Jewish people and the Pharisees of that day, you know that they failed to see that Jesus actually was that very same holy and true God just in human flesh. So the Church of Philadelphia had actually been excluded from their synagogue because they were using words like holy and true for Jesus. But the, the religious leaders and the Pharisees that they thought holy and true was meant for God only. And how dare you use that blasphemy and name Jesus holy and true? Let's continue with his introduction. He says, he is the one who has the key of David. Okay, key of David, what's, what's all that about? If you're familiar with scripture, you know that King David was kind of a big deal. He's the second king of Israel and described by God himself as a man after God's own heart. But the biggest thing about David is that God had made a promise to him that he would bring a new covenant through him that he would bring salvation through one of his descendants. We see this in Jeremiah 33. The day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the things I have promised them. In those days and at that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will do what is just and right before the land. This theme of a descendant of David is found many times throughout scriptures. But the phrase, the key of David, is only found one other time in Isaiah 22, verse 22. There's this guy named Eliakim. He's a steward of the king, and he's given the key and the authority to open and shut the door to the house of David. And throughout the rest of Isaiah, we discover that the house of David is another way of referring to the kingdom of God or the city or the temple of God, to all the riches of God the king. So Jesus is quoting this passage in Isaiah to say that he is the perfect Eliakim. He is the perfect steward of the king. He's the king himself. And he, he himself holds the key of David, the key that unlocks the door to all the riches, to the kingdom of God. Or as verse 8 would say, he holds the key that opens a door that no one can close. There are two main interpretations of what this open door means. And in many cases in Revelation, these double interpretations, I don't think it's a either or, I think most of the time it's kind of a both and. The first and probably the more obvious interpretation is that it's an open door of salvation. See, he knows the oppression that the Church of Philadelphia are facing from the Jewish people. They've been essentially locked out of their synagogue with the door shut in their faces. 
They've been excommunicated, cursed, persecuted, disowned by their family and their community. Some of you may have experienced something like that in a church community or with family or friends. When Jesus says, I hold the key of David and I've opened a door for you that no one can close, they would have immediately been filled with joy and encouragement. Jesus is saying, the door of the synagogue may be shut, but I have opened another door. I have opened the door to the only synagogue that actually matters. The door to the temple of God and the city of God. I have opened the door of salvation into the very life of God, and you are invited in. Interestingly, in this series, through our seven letters, we've now seen references to two sets of keys. In chapter 118, we see that he holds the keys of death in the grave. And now here we read that he holds the keys of David, or the keys to the kingdom of God. All right, this blew my mind as I was studying this week. See, if Jesus only held the keys of death in the grave, he wouldn't be able to offer them true life. He, wouldn't be able to set, he, he could set them free from death, but he couldn't offer them life. He could set them free from the hold of Satan, but there isn't an offer of life on the other end. He's got the key to let them out, but he doesn't have something to let them in. It made me think of the movie Titanic. Anybody see Titanic? All right. Uh, you know that scene where Jack is locked in the basement, and he's handcuffed, and the water's rising, and he's freaking out, and I, I don't actually remember how high the water got. I, I think he got out in a reasonable amount, but he got set free, right? And then he gets out, and they're trying to get upstairs, and then they come to a gate, and the gate's locked. And I think the water gets really high at that point, right? They're like struggling for air. But they just get through, and they get up to the upper deck. But spoiler alert, the ship is still sinking. Yeah, that he got unhandcuffed, and he got out of the basement. Great, now he saved himself a few minutes before he drowns in the ocean. The incredible thing is that Jesus holds both keys. He holds the key of the kingdom of God and the key of death in the grave. See, the key of the kingdom of God in this analogy would be like the keys to the lifeboat, okay? So he doesn't have just the power to save them from the basement, to unlock the doors and get them out of the, out of the cages and whatever in the basement to get on top. He also has the power to start the boat and to get them on the boat and out of there so that they're not stuck on just drowning in the middle of the ocean. See, like in the movie, not, sorry, unlike in the movie, there is room on the boat. Okay, in the movie, they didn't have enough room. People were stuck and whatever. Jesus' lifeboat has enough room for everybody. Okay, it's just a matter of you taking a choice to take a step on that boat. Jesus is saying, come on in. The door is wide open. You just got to take that step. He describes this open door of salvation in the Sermon on the Mount, which you may remember from our series a few months back. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a, fi a few find it. See, the narrow gate isn't narrow because Jesus wanted to keep people out. It's simply narrow because it's the only way to life on the other side. There are hundreds of ways to go down the broad gate to the road that leads to destruction. 
You know, if we stick with the Titanic analogy, Jesus' lifeboat is the only way off that boat. But there are hundreds of ways they could die. He could not get his handcuffs off and drown. He could not get out the door and drown. He could drown in the ocean. He could die of hypothermia. He could get trampled on in the panic of people. He could get crushed by falling furniture and, and all the wreckage. See what I'm saying? There are a hundred ways to die, to go down this road of destruction. But Jesus offers one way. The lifeboat is the only way off that boat. So the gate is narrow because there's only one way. But we're all given opportunities to be drawn towards Jesus. Yet so many of us choose to walk away. Don't mistake a narrow gate for a gate that's just open a crack. The gate of life is wide open. I feel like sometimes we picture this narrow gate as if it's just, just open a crack and there's this big guy there with some you know, bouncer guy and he's got this notebook and he's like, all right, how'd your Bible reading go? How many times you pray? Show me your tax return. How much you give away this year? That's not the reality. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that the gate is narrow, yes, but that the gate is wide open. He's, he's not there saying, show me your works. He's there saying, let me see your name tag. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of the Most High. Bought with a price. Disciple of Jesus. Citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is there with the keys of the kingdom. He has flung open the gate from death in the grave. He's freed us from that. And now he's flung open the gate to life, to the kingdom. And he's saying, come on in. You're invited. I don't care what your background is. I don't care where you came from this morning. The door is wide open and the invitation is open to you. One of the criminals that was hanging on the cross beside Jesus was invited into eternity with Jesus simply because he had faith to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. That guy was a criminal. He was being put to death because he was a bad person. And yet the gate was wide open for him. So whether you're a criminal or you've cheated on your spouse, or you've lied on your taxes, or you've spent every night looking at porn, or you're living outside the Christian sexual ethic, or you've chosen a life of greed, overindulgence, gossip, whatever your thing is, look at me. You can never out-sin the cross of Christ. Amen. If you come up to me at the end of the service and you say, I really want to know Jesus. I want to surrender my life to him from here on out. But I'm too far gone. Man, if, if you knew the things that I've done, he can never forgive someone like me. Man, that is a lie from the enemy. There is nothing you can ever do to out the grace of Jesus. The door is wide open, and Jesus says that nobody but himself can close it. It is up to you to walk through it and to surrender yourself to Jesus. And for those of you who have already taken that step through the door of salvation, we need to take comfort in the fact that he says nobody can close it. Brothers, sisters, be confident in your salvation. There is no need for this sinner's prayer 200 times over just to make sure you're in. If you've taken that step of faith and surrendered and trusted your life to Jesus, you're in, period. Rest assured in the grace and the gift of salvation. I'm just going to pray before we continue. Jesus, I thank you that... This is such an open, wide gift. 
that there isn't some guy at the gate with it barely opened, guarding it, saying, hey, show me your works. Did you read enough? Did you pray enough? Did you serve enough? No, those things are important, but they are not what gets us to relationship with you. It is faith, a surrendered life to you. So God, if, if someone is stirring in that this morning, I pray that you would continue to stir. Holy Spirit, would you awaken a heart this morning? Jesus, we need you. Open that door wide open. And God, I pray that you would help some people here walk through that door this morning. And if we have taken that step of salvation, God, would you just rest us assured that we are safe. We are in. There's no 200 times over having to say this prayer, God. We are in because of your free gift of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the second interpretation of this door is an open door of opportunity. This is how the image of an open door is most commonly used in the rest of the New Testament. Paul tells the Corinthians, there is a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose me. Or again, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he says, when I came to the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened door of opportunity for me. And then he asked the Colossians to pray that God may open a door for our message that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Basically, this interpretation of the open door is that the open door of opportunity is to tell others about the open door of salvation. Before we get into what this all looks like, I just want to shut down the idea that the open door equals no obstacles. Right after Paul tells the Corinthians of the wide open door for the great work, the very next thing he says, there are many who oppose me. There are always going to be obstacles. Some just a natural part of life. Some because there are people who won't agree with what you're doing. And some because you're making waves in the kingdom and the enemy is going to do whatever he can to stop you. I think oftentimes we get hyped up about doing some great work for the kingdom, but then we inevitably run into obstacles and decide that it must be a sign that Jesus didn't actually open that door for us. Man, we're actually pretty much guaranteed the opposite. John 16, tells us, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Just look at Paul's life. You don't think he had obstacles? He was being persecuted almost daily by the religious leaders. He was getting thrown into prison, it seemed, every other week. He was threatened and beaten. You don't think he saw those things as obstacles? See, sometimes I fear that we have so watered down what it actually looks like to follow Jesus that we just expect this easy, breezy life where God protects us from all our hardships. Man, that's a crock of crap. Can I say that? I don't know. Look, these seven churches... They're enduring through something, all of them. We could go through person after person after person in the Bible, and literally almost every single one of them suffered, struggled, went through trials, oppression, faced obstacles. Why do we think that we should be any different? The existence of obstacles doesn't prove that God didn't open this door of opportunity for us. It almost seems as a better indication that he did open the door. The enemy wants to do everything in his power to steer us off course. We will face troubles and obstacles. That's essentially a guarantee. The challenge is, what do we do when we face those obstacles? See, all too often, 
I think our gut response is to look inward, to develop the huddle mentality. I think we're all kind of well acquainted with this now, right? It's the, let's just lay low, take care of ourselves until the storm blows over. It's the empty toilet paper shelves at the start of COVID. It's the, I'm going to hold a tight grip on my money until I know we're safe and on the other side. I can't serve and take care of you because I'm too busy worrying about taking care of myself. Jesus is saying, "Uh -uh, that is not what I have for you. Look, I have put before you an open door. I guarantee you their situation did not feel like an open door to them. They faced strong opposition from their old church. We see in verse 10 that they're heading into a great time of testing. Whatever this testing looks like, the church would have very easily been tempted to hunker down to protect itself. In essence, Jesus is saying, this isn't the time to play it safe. There is an open door of opportunity waiting for you amidst the time of testing. The reality is that when we play it safe, we are actually setting ourselves up for big-time failure. As I begin to wrap up, I want to share a story from Max Lucado. It's a time when he and a friend and his dad went for a fishing trip, but it ended up raining and snowing all week, and they were stuck in their camper truck all week. He says, I learned a hard lesson that week, not about fishing, but about people. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. When energy intended to be used outside is used inside, the result is explosive. Instead of casting nets, we cast stones. Instead of extending helping hands, we point accusing fingers. Instead of being fishers of the lost, we become critics of the saved. Rather than helping the hurting, we hurt the helpers. The result? Church scrooges. Bahumbug spirituality. BDIs searching for warts on others while ignoring the warts on the nose below. Crooked fingers that bypass strengths and point out weaknesses. Split churches. Poor testimonies. Broken hearts. Legalistic wars. And sadly, the poor go unfed, the confused go uncounseled, and the lost go unpreached. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. Jesus says, look, I have put before you an open door. Now go for it. I've only got 28 years to go off of, but in that time, I can't remember a time that the church has faced more inward fighting and disunity than in the past two years. And wouldn't you know, it's when we're all hunkered down, distracted, soothing ourselves, stuck inside, scrolling through social media, watching Netflix, rather than getting out there for God's mission. There's no time for hunkering down, even in the face of opposition. If we could ever get over our little squabbles about secondary non-kingdom things, man, we could make waves in the kingdom. The city of Philadelphia was founded in 140 BC with one main purpose in mind, and that was to be the hub the launching point from which to Hellenize the world, literally to spread the Greek culture, the language, the, everything about Greek, to make the world Greek. Philadelphia was to be the base from which the Greek language and its worldview and way of life spread to the world around. Basically, the Greeks had made Philadelphia as a missionary city for everything Greek. But then Jesus comes along and says, yeah, that's great, but I'm going to use this for my purposes now. Rather than being a base for turning the world Greek, Jesus says from now on, this city is going to be a base for gospelizing the world. 
Philadelphia was located on one of the most important highways in the world, connecting Europe to the east. It was legitimately one of the most strategic cities in the ancient world. No wonder Jesus says, look, I have opened a door of opportunity for you. They had the world right at their fingertips. Does that remind you of anywhere else? Maybe, say, right outside these walls? We may not be physically set up with a strategic highway connecting the world, but we live in the most diverse, multicultural region in the world. There are over 200 ethnic groups and over 100 language, 180 languages spoken in the GTA. We quite literally have a chance to gospelize the world because of where we live. Jesus has opened a door of opportunity wide open in our day, in our city. Again, my view of history is limited, but I can't think of a time when it's been more apparent that that door is wide open. Our world is a mess. There is hatred and disunity everywhere you look, from politics to racial injustice to religious divide and all that COVID added on top of that. Our world is so divided, so broken. In all of it, people are trying to find meaning in their jobs and relationships, their sexuality and appearance, and more money, more stuff, indulgence of things. Trying desperately to find hope, to find a reason to live. Our world has been growing increasingly anxious and depressed over the past number of years and decades, but that skyrocketed during COVID, specifically in the millennial and Gen Z generations. People may not be able to verbalize it, but the things that we have put our hope in and our value in have failed. And they are looking for something deeper, something that can give true hope, true purpose, true life, and that's why the door of opportunity is wide open in our day. The world is desperate for what Jesus has to offer. We just need to take a step through the open door to be the hands and feet of Jesus to show them what they're looking for. As I close, do you, do you know what I think the secret of all this is? It's found in verse 8 of our passage. Jesus says, You have little strength, yet you obeyed my world and did not deny me. That passing phrase, you have little strength, isn't meant as an insult or a rebuke. It's simply an acknowledgement that this church has been beaten down. They've faced pressure and persecution. They've been shut out from their community, all while being immersed in a city of idolatry to these other false gods. This church is tired and worn down. But in their weakness, in their little strength, Jesus is able to work through us immeasurably more than if we were full of strength and pride. Paul writes of this experience that Jesus says to him, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast, that's Paul, about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong because of Jesus working through him. I don't know about you, but I feel so out of my league so weak in our day and age. I don't have the words, I don't have the experience, I don't have the power to face it on my own. I need the power of Jesus every day for my ministry to this world to mean anything. But the Church of Philadelphia has shown us that that posture is more than enough. The harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. 
that door is wide open. We just got to take a step through. Amen. Jesus, take the little strength that we have to offer our faithfulness to you and your word and move your mighty power through us tenfold. Not for, your, not for our glory, but for yours. Jesus, the world that we live in seems more broken than ever. The reality is that our poor substitutes for relationship with you are failing and the world is in desperate need of your saving grace. What an incredible opportunity we have, an open door of opportunity in our day. Jesus, would you be our strength? Give us the words and the grace and the love to share it with the world. And as the song says, show us how to love like you've loved us and break our hearts for what breaks yours.